Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine 24-7 podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz here with me, and this will be a football episode. If you like it, be sure to rate it, review it, share it with your friends, um, subscribe so you, so you get it more easily next time. You can read all of our stories over at the michiganinsider.com, michigan.247sports.com. I'm excited about this episode because we can actually talk about newsworthy things. It's a little bit less, uh, not manufactured, because you know there's always there's always news. But we actually got to talk to a coach. Um, you know, Don Brown gave a gave a really great interview, and he stayed extra uh, with the reporters, which I always appreciate. He was on with us for just over 50 minutes yesterday. Lots of stories over at our website uh, coming out from what he said. He talked depth chart. He talked Ohio State. He talked um, recruiting in the pandemic. He talked. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the potential changes to rules or things going on happening in the fall. So we'll talk a lot about that, but I generally speaking, I'm Steve, I'm sure you're the same way. We would rather talk about what the listeners ask us to talk about than maybe what we want to talk about. So we're going to do, we're going to do some questions. If there's topics that aren't discussed, uh, either a couple of them, we're going to table for a different episode, but, but some of it we'll discuss at the end of this episode. So Let's start, oh, uh, let's do this one. This one comes from Garbo, uh, Dave Garbachik, who says, could you see players like Luigi Villain and Donovan Jeter making big jumps this year? It seems like they were highly recruited, but have been forgotten a bit because of injuries. And so we'll, we'll broaden it just a little bit, not just talk about those two, but with what, three three-year starters gone with three other draft picks gone from Michigan's defense, there is absolutely room for people to take jumps forward. I think a couple of them are, are kind of gimmies at this point. I think Chris Hinton, former top 50 recruit, has basically taken that second defensive tackle starting spot. And I think Mike Barrett is probably another gimme. And Dax Hill, uh, Barrett wrote about him yesterday. I mean... You know, he's he's been adjusting to the defensive side of the ball a little bit more. But Don Brown, I mean, the way he talked about Barrett was basically like it was it was a given he's going to be good. And so so those three are there. But some of the other guys who could step up, and I I think I think Villain I Steve, I I don't know, you you might have been able to keep in a row, so two separate seasons derailed to injuries. Former top 100 recruit, um, really, really explosive, quick-twitch player, actually rose to a top 100 recruit with only two years of high school football under his belt. Um, we can start there. Is he is he a pretty strong candidate to, to have like a, a quote-unquote breakout season? Uh, I think it depends on like what the definition of breakout would be. I, you know, I don't know if he's like an all conference kind of guy. I wouldn't sure. like peg him there, sure. but from where he's been, I, like I said, I, we talked about this for a minute before we went on the air. I, I liked, I liked what I saw to him in his limited snaps last year when he was able to get some playing time. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing for him, he is, it's like, uh, it's almost like been starting over for him with the injuries that he's had to go through. He's never been 100% healthy. Last year was really finally the first time 
since he's stepped on campus where he's been at 100% and able to like practice, which for right now I think is as important for him as playing. It's just practicing, playing at a high speed every day, whether it's against other teams or his own. And um, he's got the tools. Like I said, physically, physical uh, attributes have never been the question. It's really just about acclimating himself to the college game, the speed of the college game. I do think he could find a role, though, as a pass rush specialist type. I guess I guess Uche mm-hmm. is kind of how we're going to call all those guys going forward. But, right. <laughs> um, you know, I think he can really find a niche in that situation. Now, is he going to walk on the field if they do play Washington? Is he going to walk on the field and come out right away with his hair on fire in that game? Not necessarily. I think he might be a guy. It might take him a few games and some extended snaps and extended time to really start to make an impact. But I think he's a guy you start to get a conference season, second half of the year, I think could become more and more, of a, more, and more of an asset for them. Yeah, I, I tentatively agree, right? I think it's there's, there's step one, and I think, I think he hit step one last year, and that was getting back on the field. Um, you know, really a, a great story. I, I don't think we've had him for an interview yet, but one of the first questions I want to ask, and I don't mean this in a, in a blunt way, but how when you have that second kind of season-ending injury, and as you said, you're basically – asked to physically start over do you consider just taking a medical hardship and retiring and clearly he has bigger plans he has he's driven he's got he's got really uh high ambition and high drive to to stick it out and so i i commend him for that regard he is going to have some competitors though you know david ajabo we talked about him last week probably don't need to spend a ton of time on him but one guy don brown actually mentioned before both Valane and Ajabo that's played a little bit like I think he had two tackles last year um, I will say the low numbers they already kind of had a sense of who they wanted on the defensive front so that that's part of why their their numbers might be low is that their snaps were low but Taylor Upshaw is is interesting to me he's he's similar to Valane and Ajabo in that they only began playing high school football their junior years his dad Reagan Upshaw was a former first-round pick and nine-year NFL vet. Uh, he's he, he, Reagan's from the Michigan area, Berrien Springs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but T- Taylor Upshaw is another player kind of in the same boat as Ajabo and Valane, and that they can be pat, not pass-resting specialists, because I, I do think their skill sets are span a little bit wider than that, but, but can be what we would, I guess, call the Josh Uche. And this is a story I wrote yesterday is that, you know, who's the next Josh Uche and all three have similar, um, some similar traits. And I think one similar trait that is very fascinating to me. And I think makes Sean Nua's off season, a very interesting one. I think all three have NFL potential. Now, you know, there's, I'm not saying they should be in the NFL. If they don't make the NFL, it was a, it was a, it was a bust, but they, the way, they test physically the way they can move, um, you know, kind of the quick twitch for that size and looking around college football, looking at some of the top modern defensive ends, you know, maybe like a Josh Allen type or a Miles Garrett type. They have not those traits yet, but they have similar potential in the sense that, you know, if things hit, they have the bend, they have the explosiveness off the line. Um, you know, they have the, the strength and the size. 
it's really interesting. I, I think that's one of the bigger questions, less talked about questions, because there's some obvious questions, but the less talked about questions on the defense is, who is Michigan's next Josh Uche? And just what kind of product do they put on the field? Steve, any thoughts on on what seems to be a three-person battle here? And and we haven't actually talked about Taylor Upshaw very much. Any Anything to add from... Uh, from your time either covering him as a recruit or, or things that you're hearing there? Third year. I think the funny, the parallel, there is one parallel between Upshaw and Uche. Uh, when Uche was recruited, he was looked at as, you know, a year three redshirt mm-hmm. guy and then give him another year. And then in year three, the, the expectations would be that they could make a contribution. Uh, Upshaw's kind of followed that same path. Like you, like you said about, you know, he was one of the first, like you say, like other guys that saw the field up front, you know, and I don't want to call it garbage time because that time is really valuable for some of these guys, but he's one of the first real subs in up front after the starters and the guys that played 30 plus snaps a game were, you know, finished up or or taken out. So that's always a good sign that a guy's progressing properly. And again, much like Uche Upshaw was recruited, not as a guy who was going to make an immediate impact. You know, you got to remember, he committed in November of 2017. Michigan had just taken, what, six or seven defensive linemen in the 2017 cycle. Hmm. So beside, and Hutchinson again was, you know, a legacy in your backyard, whatever. Got to take that guy no matter what. But I think they were, they were very comfortable in taking a couple of guys who might take a little bit longer to produce or to acclimate themselves to the college game uh julius welshoff being the other guy they took up front in 2018 so with that in mind he's on 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 the path you know the problem with that is the 17 class busted they could have used a guy that made an earlier impact i think at some point Mm -hmm. you know so um well hasn't totally busted we'll see how luigi does this year and then got the guy asked about jeter and he's another one in that class that hasn't really done anything yet so um but with upshaw yeah I like I, I just kind of follow the progression. We've always, like I said, we've always heard he's a, a guy that had a lot of the tools. Obviously, he has the bloodline. But it was really just about learning how to play football, learning how to play Don Brown's defense. Mm-hmm. So he could easily be the favorite. I, I, you know, I've been big on David Ajabo since Michigan recruited him. I know how they feel about him. Uh, but again, even in that like at that, that one position, these guys do offer, like, they're not like the exact same player. I mean, you have right. different <laughs> styles, right? I mean, well, yeah. that's a, yeah, that's the thing. I think, you know, you think you say Uche, so you're just thinking a guy coming around the corner, you know, trying to sack. Well, the and real quick, Brown did mention some of, you know, just between this three person battle, a couple of them are better interior rushers. A couple of them are better exterior. A couple are better coming out of a, you know, out of a down stance versus, you know, it's, standing and so yeah there are going to be different things and and I think Don Brown's quote I'm going to paraphrase just so we don't spend time pulling it up but basically he said the nice thing is I don't have to dictate what they do they dictate what they do and and this this Uche role is interesting because they don't technically have to use it if if nobody steps up they'll just do four traditional linemen you know the the two inside linebackers and the viper and and that will be their primary base but if there is someone who does emerge like josh uche and 
And no matter where they're rushing from or what kind of stylistic thing they do, if they're impossible to bench, they're impossible to bench. And so that, that makes this really fascinating to me that, yeah, you could be, maybe you are better coming from a Sam linebacker role or a, a you know, kind of down defensive end role. But if you're good enough, Michigan, <laughs> Don Brown's not going to bench you if, if you're good enough. So inter- I don't know. It's just an interesting element of it that, yeah, there are a lot of different ways. We say Josh Uche, but it's not, not everything falls under the Uche umbrella. It's just this kind of hybridized pass rushing role. Yeah, that's so that's, you know, Michigan's been recruiting versatility across the board basically since Don Brown came in. And it's for that reason. That's not the primary reason necessarily, but that's one of the reasons, you know, is that now they can, they have a uh, laundry list of guys who have a lot of different skill sets. And basically whoever emerges within each of these groups, they can kind of mold the defense around those skill sets. Right. So. That way, you know, you're doing one of the things that a lot of great coaches, a lot of great players know is you you basically tailor your schemes to allow your best players to make the best plays, you know, in the way that they're maybe designed to necessarily. I, I Actually, to bring it up, I think Urban Meyer's one who's said that in the past about the guys he's had at quarterback, you know, the guys he's had at running back to tailor the offense to the guys, to who you have, tailor it to your personnel and allow them to make plays the way that they know how to make plays. So, you know, I think Michigan under Brown really are kind of getting there, especially up front, because they do have such a wide variety of guys on the edge, especially, uh, but also in the defensive backfield too. You know, we're seeing with the Viper and at safety, how they're recruiting just a lot of really just unique style type guys. You just look in 2020 alone, like Jordan Morant, RJ Moten, Makari Page are all, listed as safeties, but in my opinion, are all three completely different football players. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just another way to give yourself some versus – because here's the best-case scenario. You say two or three of these guys all step up and look good, and you're like, okay, now we can give this – we can give offenses a multitude of different looks. But, you know, if only one guy steps up or if he steps up big, you still know you got a lot of different areas or ways that you can attack. Yeah. Real quick, just because Garbo asked about it, Donovan Jeter, I, we'll open up him, Jeter, or not him, Jeter, Jeter and, and Mozzie Smith. Don Brown did, he seemed confident in the defensive tackles. Uh, maybe, I'm not, I'm not opposed to changing my opinion. I, I just, I'm not sure that I saw enough. I mean, I think Mozzie Smith had one tackle last season. I'm not sure how many Donovan Jeter had, but it was, it was not many. So as far as their breakout potential, I think I think the skill set is there. I mean, they were both high, highly rated recruits. You know, they have the size. Don Brown did kind of mention that. I feel like he almost almost putting the pressure on those young defensive tackles, basically listing them all at 300 pounds. They have the size. They have the strength. They probably still have the quickness based on, you know, the, the different discussions that Sean New has had and things like that. I think for someone like a Jeter or Mozzie Smith, Steve – feel free to weigh in here, but I think it's, I think it comes down to consistency. You know, not everyone, you know, Mo Hurst was, was gifted and, and, you know, Ryan Glasgow was, uh, he, he became gifted to by the end of his tenure at Michigan, but so much of how they got onto the field and started making some of those plays was producing something every single snap. 
I feel like that's such such a big difference maker. And I think Carlo Kemp started to show it, uh, especially in the back half of last season before he got injured. But to me, you know, if someone's asking, what's it going to take for Donovan Jeter or Mozzie Smith to have breakout seasons, kind of like what we're talking about at other positions, I think it come down, comes down to consistency. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, Smith, I think, is in shape, too. Mm-hmm. I think is big for him. I think Sam, oh, was it Sam or Bryce, a couple months ago, a few months ago, so a really some really good reports about the work that he's put in this offseason. I assume that's continuing with everything that's been going on. With Jeter, I mean, I look at it like this. You know, Dwum four left. Jeter's still on the roster. I mean, in my just overview of that alone, to me, says that Michigan thinks that Jeter's got something still that he can give to them. You know, and uh, probably one of the few that I can remember, you know, last, I think last spring, last fall uh, or summer fall camp, you know, he was getting a decent amount of attention. It sounded like the expectations were pretty high for him. And I, I don't, you know, I think he'd probably say didn't really meet what it sounded like they thought he was capable of. So, you know, could be, a, it's a really talk about a make or break. You bring up make or break kind of guys. This is definitely a make or break season for, for Jeter in a lot of ways, right? So uh be interesting to see. I think Mozzie's got the higher ceiling. You know, sure, he, was, sure. he was a more highly regarded recruit. The staff loved him. Uh not that they didn't love Jeter, right? But still, Jeter's been on campus. This will be his what fourth year, right? So I think so. Now he did have some injury issues too. Right, right. He has not, de- he wasn't immune to it, but he's dealt with stuff, but not as much as like Luigi has, let's say. Um hasn't really seized that opportunity yet. So, but again, like I said, you know, Dwumfor, who actually played some pretty good football at points for Michigan, left and Jeter stayed. And, you know, to me, that in a lot of, in a lot of cases, when you talk about that type of stuff, usually the players that the staff wants to stay on the roster are the ones that stay on the roster for the most part. You know, um, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's always different – I'm not saying that about every kid that's transferred necessarily, but if you kind of get where I'm going with that, where, you know, my my sense is that they feel that Jeter has some potential for them this season in the middle. Yeah, just – yeah, I think think you're on to something there. I mean, you know, and I think think it's one of those things. I think Sean New and Don Brown, the way they talk about Jeter is very much like it's there, it's there, just got to find it. By the way, just for – some statistical backing to um, to this defensive tackle position last year. Carlo Kemp led the way by a, a zillion. He had 40 tackles. And then actually next, even though he wasn't a starter, was Chris Hinton at 10, 10 tackles. Michael Dumfor had nine, uh, including one and a half tackles for loss. So he was a little bit more of a – he could cause a little bit more havoc when he was – when things were clicking for him. Smith and Jeter – combined for zero tackles so um you know they they're gonna have more of an opportunity this year michigan needs them to to produce more i think to have more success on the defense defensive side of the ball but yeah it's gonna be it's going to be interesting um because i i think i think a little consistency you know arriving to fall camp arguably in better shape than they were before could go a long way too um but as far as Garbo's question, could they break out? I, I think 
I think there are paths at defensive tackle and, and edge edge rusher, but as kind of Don Brown says, it's you know he'll coach, he'll coach, and and you know Ben Herbert will coach, but some of it does come down to the players. Other questions. Um, Zeb plus Giles season says predictions for freshmen that could possibly burn their red shirt. We're going to do that in a different podcast. Our, our next one will be looking at uh, my 20 under 20 list with like kind of a unique angle, looking at different players coming off of red shirts, players who might burn red shirts, uh, you know, d- different, different angles of looking at Michigan's future. Uh, Wolverine pulse asked a basketball question. Table that we'll, we'll hit a basketball question. Uh, or basketball podcast in June. Jordan Eggleston asked, with the NCAA recent ruling, will that force conferences to follow suit, or can you see the Big Ten making their own rules? So, imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowling Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus 15% off your first order with code ODYSSEY. So head to B-O-L-L and branch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Steve, I don't know how, how much you have to add here, but I did do a story yesterday. Um, we did get to talk to a Michigan spokesperson about what what it realistically looks like for Michigan to return to pra- to facilities, I should say. Uh, I know Illinois, just while we were recording this, announced that they expect their athletes to return to campus June 3rd, which is, given where the state of Illinois is, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised by that. Ohio State, June 8th. And you're going to start to see that. The NCAA ruled that voluntary workouts for football, men's basketball, and women's basketball can begin June 1st. Now, the steps for Michigan to get there, first, the stay-at-home order must be lifted. Second, um, gyms must be allowed to be open again. I guess that is the that is Michigan football's interpretation of the rule. Now, we'll see. They, they probably they have the largest gym in the country from their estimation as far as football facilities go. 32,000 square feet, very easy to follow social distancing guidelines and, and sanitation requirements in a gym that large. Um, and then step three is Michigan, the university and, and the athletic department must come to an agreement about when these athletes return to campus. As far as the Big Ten, based on Illinois and Ohio State's actions, it's, it's probably going to end up being open season. I know there was talk about maybe extending the Big Ten a couple weeks, the moratorium on, on facilities within the conference, just to give a little bit more balance. But I see the SEC uh, just set its date for a return to voluntary workouts, literally, again, while we were recording this. So hopefully this isn't obsolete, but they set it for June 8th. So maybe that's a precedent for the Big Ten. Um, I don't think we have much opinion here our opinion doesn't really doesn't really matter anyways on this regard but um steve maybe a question for you since you've been able to follow this through the years how much of a difference can june voluntary workouts make uh you know on campus versus not on campus and and you can you can take this question wherever you want to but 
kind of what sort of significance does that have for the fall? I mean, if, if, if 10 of the 14 teams in the conference end up being able to go or end up being able to do voluntary workouts on within their facilities and four of them don't, that's just an example. I say those, those four teams are at a huge disadvantage. Hmm. I mean, it's to be together to just be able to, I'm not sure now in June, I'm not sure. Are the coaches allowed to coach in June? I can't remember. I, I, they, they aren't. That's why I wondered if, if the I rules think there's would like change. something like there's like one or two workouts you can do that the coach can, can be engaged. They can't coach, but they can be there. Okay. It's I'm thinking just being with your staff, with your teammates again, I think there's a lot, you know, that's why I think you're seeing schools make the decision to do it. Well, My I sense think Ohio is, State brings up a good point. Would you rather have your student athletes working out all at the same facility where they have tests? Yep. They're going to follow the rules. It's the same people every day. There's more space. Nobody's trying to pack the gym to make up for lost membership revenue. Or would you rather have them all just working out wherever? Not knowing who they're in contact with. Down the street, at the gym down the street or whatever. I think think in that regard, Michigan might want, you know, I'm not going to tell them what to do, but I think Michigan might consider getting student athletes back on campus a little bit sooner. I know Ward Manuel said he wanted to wait till all students were back on campus. Or, or a larger share of students were on campus. But maybe that is one thing, is that these players are under obligation to work out. And if you're Michigan, are you under obligation to give them the best opportunity to work out as opposed to letting them, you know, Ronnie Bell's pushing cars, Quiddy Pace, uh, you know, filling up suitcases and lifting that. And, and who knows? I mean, once these gyms open up, do people go to these gyms that are pro- might violate the rules? They might have a lot of different people. So I'll let you continue with your thought. Just, just one thing, Ohio State, I did think, set, brought up an interesting angle of this that it might be safer to do it on the university facilities. Yeah, in that regard, I agree. But then, like I said, I think just from a, you know, at what point are we going to start talking about how it affects the potential, there's potential success in a season? And that's kind of the angle I was taking. Mm-hmm. thinking that I think it's to it's a huge advantage to get all your guys on campus working out together and you know within the same facility you know type deal so um you know I think it's a win-win either way as long as it's done responsibly but like you said you know if there, there are guys working out at home who knows where you know it's kind of weird to look at it that way but you know one guy from one area of the country could go to like one store and get you know then you get a whole but if you get everybody in, in, in sort of a controlled atmosphere and where they want to be, I have to assume that there's not a player on the team that would not prefer to be in Ann Arbor right now doing right. voluntary workouts with their right. teammates, right, at this point. So, you know, I think it's to Michigan's – it's in Michigan's best interest to kind of follow suit here and get a date figured out and get their guys back up. Yeah, yeah, and again – there are there are some things that are out of the program's hands, and I, I think they should honor that. I don't think there should be pressure this, pressure that. But looking around at some of the other Big Ten programs, and and kind of again, 
just on the surface of what Ohio State said, I, I think there there are some interesting points to consider. Whether that's you know every state is is and and, and region of each state is is feeling the effects of this differently. So that that is part of what makes it tricky. But um, as far as the Big Ten, to Jordan's question, I think I think you'll see maybe a slight delay. Like SEC, they're not doing June 1. They're doing June 8. You might see something like that just to allow a few more schools to, as this slowly kind of gradually phases out, might allow more schools to open up. But at the same time, I, I think... I think Jim Harbaugh's even said it. They really can't wait for the whole conference to be a part of this or, or to be ready to go. Otherwise, the you know who knows how long they'll be waiting. And and he doesn't he doesn't like the all for none approach. He thinks there are more creative ways to look at it. Um, speaking of Jim Harbaugh, our next question comes from James Crudup. If I screwed up that Crudup last name, then uh, forgive me, but. How is Jim considered one of the most overrated coaches in the country, yet Michigan is considered one of the most underachieving teams in the country? So when I first read this question, I, I actually thought this was either a typo or a troll in that, yes, if a team underachieves, the person in charge of the team would be overrated. But I think, Steve, you enlightened me that maybe this is phrased a little differently, that Jim Harbaugh is, is overrated, yet his teams are good enough to the point where they kind of flatline at the finish and everyone says, oh, they, they squandered this opportunity. I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'll let you start with this. How did you interpret this question, and, and what is your take on it? I thought it was t- kind of taking a shot at you see these like top coaches in the country lists where like, Harbaugh has an above 500 record against like eight or nine guys combined who are ranked ahead of him hmm. yet. Then you read team previews and stuff. And Michigan is always under, you know, listed as like a big underachiever, all that type type of thing. I, I think, I think they're kind of playing on that where I think his angle is it's one or the other. It, like, is it one or is it the other? Which one is it? You know, like not, not both necessarily, uh, that if, if the coach is overrated, how could the team be regarded enough to even be considered underachievers? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's where he's going with it. I kind of thought it was a funny question, and I, I agree. I think, it, like, I, I chuckle at some of these, uh, you know, these top coaches lists. I think the one moron had Harbaugh wasn't even one of the top 25 coaches in the country on his list, which is yeah, yeah, that's... one of the stupidest things how could you even write that and call yourself a reputable national college football writer? Like, honestly, you can argue, you can argue all day that Michigan is underachieved under Jim Harbaugh. And I think a lot more people would even in the, within the Michigan fan base Mm -hmm. would agree with you than you think, but it's stuff like that, that becomes like laughable to the point where it's like, it it really reinforces a lot of the what I say like the insecurities and the the jaded what's become just the most jaded fan base in the country in my opinion in Michigan when you know the feeling is is that a lot of the national media is sort of out to get Michigan or likes to do a little bit of grave dancing on Michigan when they're struggling or when they're when they are losing to Ohio State or when they're losing to Alabama or whatever. 
And I think I kind of, I'm assuming that's what he's getting at because I, I, that's the first thing I saw was, yeah, like if, if, if Harbaugh is so overrated, then Michigan was never really any good to begin with. And they're just achieving at a level that they should have been. Hmm. How are they underachieving? You know? So um, I liked it. I thought it was a funny question, you know, because, yeah, if Harbaugh's not one of the top 25 coaches, you take that stupid list. If he's not one of the top 25 coaches in the country, then the how on earth? Overachieving. Then, they, then they'd be overachieving, wouldn't right. they? I mean, right. it, it's, it's stupid. So, um, so, yeah, I thought that was – I think I'm almost certain that's where he was going with it. I thought it was a good question. I kind of got a chuckle out of it. Yeah, yeah. Under that premise, I, I, I get it. It's um, – yeah, outside of the top 25, there's not really an argument for that other than attention. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I was gonna say, I was waiting yeah. to hear what you were going to say. I was like, <laughs> no, there is no – like, can you – seriously, can you call yourself an objective, legitimate national writer and have – I mean, where is Michigan in the S&P Plus under, since Harbaugh's been hired? Aren't they like seventh or eighth or something? So – I don't actually know that one, but a couple stats. Uh, they are ninth among Power Five teams in wins. They were not ninth before he arrived. They are fifth since he arrived in producing NFL draft picks. They were not fifth in NFL draft pick production before he arrived. I think they were like they were outside the top fifteen. Right. They are eleventh. I actually came up with this. Feel free to check it out at, on my Twitter page. But I kind of broke down the cumulative AP poll finish over the last five years. And it actually comes out to roughly how, how things have gone the last five years. And Michigan came 11th in that ranking. Now, you know, it's not the end all be all. There are some limitations to it, but kind of looking at assigning points for AP poll finishes, Michigan, I mean, they haven't, they haven't been Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, um, Ohio state. You could, I think you could make a pretty good argument. They haven't been, Penn State, Wisconsin, uh, Florida, Georgia, LSU either. But I think they're, they're right after that in the sense that, I mean, they've been good every year. They've been very good a couple of the years. And I actually think CBS Sports did a coach ranking. And I think I agree with, even though it sounds kind of high, I think maybe you could argue Paul Christ deserves some, some attention but they actually put Jim Harbaugh 12th, and the first line was this. The world at large tends to spend more time focusing on what Harbaugh hasn't done at Michigan than what he has done. So maybe that's getting to, to kind of what you're saying, Steve, where, look, I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are, you know, the one in nine against Ohio State and in the bowl games, that's not Hol- good. Totally that's, fair game, too. Yeah, like, yeah. But you can't say one without saying, hey, the 46-9 and nine in Michigan's first 11 games of the season in five years under Harbaugh, 46-9, and nine, that's pretty good. There are like eight teams, eight or nine teams that wouldn't take that over a five-year stretch. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 12, maybe, maybe a, See, with it 12, sounds a little high, with but 12, at the same time, Probably in that twelve to fifteen range, wouldn't you say? With twelve, the there's like the there are arguments that can be made for that that make mm-hmm. twelve fit. I 
I'm more of like when I, I don't know, it's weird. Like I look at you, you give me the best coaches list. I say, okay, so if Harbaugh is ranked 12th, does that mean that all 11 teams in front of him or the teams of coaches in front of him on that list, would all 11 of them not take him as their head coach over who they have right so now? So I'm actually looking at the list, Steve. I, I think that is the case. The only exception might, I don't know enough about in a Brian Kelly and Notre Dame. But if you're looking at these other 11 teams, they're all they're, – I think they would all take with what, what they have over, over just a tra- straight-up trade with Michigan for Jim Harbaugh. I think, I think those 11 would stand pat. But that is – to me, that's the logic of coaching rankings is would a team – so, like, I think I saw one where um, – eh, I don't know if I really need to get specific, but, like – there are teams with coaches who have allegedly top 20 coaches and, and, and I think you can make a case that they're top 20 coaches, but I think several of those teams would hire Jim Harbaugh if they, if, if he was on the market and they could without a buyout. So it's an interesting to me. I think that's, that's if one coach is better than the other coach in theory, the team with the worst coach should take the better coach I might be getting my words jumbled there. Should take the better coach over the worst coach. Be willing to. And I think I think you're right. Harbaugh, if, if Harbaugh was suddenly on the coaching market, I think you'd realize, okay, maybe he maybe he wasn't overrated because a lot of teams are are come come calling. It's it's the whole ironic thing where it's like Jim Harbaugh is underachieving at, at Michigan or he's so overrated and then they're still having to fend off not not so much anymore, but they're still having to fend off NFL head coaching rumors. It's like, okay, right. if he's right. if he's on the hot seat at Michigan, but the Chicago Bears are calling, I don't know if they actually called or anything, but yeah, it's just one of those things. I think you know what it is. Right. It it's it starts with A and rhymes with detention. So No, I I <laughs> I know that's I know that's the angle there, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. You're supposed to be reputable. Like again, like I said, you can you could list him. You could even list him like fifteenth, I guess, and like there'd be like I could I see what so. the argument would be. But you you start not top twenty five. I think that thing was a that was a long time ago too, but that's been it itches at you a little bit just because it's so over the top that it's ridiculous. So and I you know I don't know I, I think I'd put. I mean, is Penn State beating Ohio State in two thousand sixteen? Is that going to prop them up? over Michigan for like the next eight years because like well Penn State has three 11 win seasons yeah I know I I I know what you're saying the the gap between the two programs is not as wide as oh it's minimal if anything I mean (laughs) what's what's I mean Frank isn't Franklin under under 500 against Michigan Michigan State and Ohio State he's one and five against Ohio State he's two and four against Michigan I believe he's at three and three at best against Michigan State, isn't he? You know, I don't I know. I mean, maybe. So I don't. Either way, so, but I, I'm, I, I would put. I would say I'm not. I guess I'm not even arguing that I would put Michigan above. But yeah, I mean, that's another whole different conversation you could get into. Is you know, James Franklin loves to talk to the media, and he's very good to the media, which is great for the people that cover him and stuff. But I just, I do. I think it's almost created this like artificial gap between Michigan and Penn state. Whereas like, I just think that they're how they've performed the two programs since Harbaugh was hired 
is the only difference, in my opinion, and I know they've won 11 games, but the only difference is that they beat Ohio State that one game. You know, otherwise... They also won bowl games. They won the Cotton Bowl. They won the Fiesta Bowl. You know, beating Memphis. I don't know. You know, so... They are 31-8 and the last three years, while Michigan is, what, 27 and... 12. Yeah. I'm not that's saying a I, that's a four game difference. I said, I, I'm not even, I just said, I'm not even arguing that I would put Michigan ahead right. of them. I just think that if, if, if somebody who didn't know anything about college football read stories and read these things, you would think that Penn state was like blowing Michigan out of the water reputation wise the last four or five years when it hasn't been the case. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you just yeah, look at the yeah. head to head Michigan's, outscored them like 130 to like 12 the last two games they've played at Michigan Stadium not legitimately but that's pretty much what it's been you know so I don't know interesting uh, it's just uh yeah because what I bet Franklin was probably ranked like in the top six or seven in that same ranking that Harbaugh wasn't I, in the top 25 right oh I don't know about that one I was gonna say CBS which I which actually had I think they were smart in that they did a lot of different reporters, so it wasn't necessarily tied to one person's grudge or opinion or or you know favorability toward one coach or another. They actually had James Franklin ninth, Jim Harbaugh twelfth, uh, Ryan Day tenth, Kyle Whittingham eleventh. If people are curious, I tend to agree based on the, the current snapshot. You know, if if Michigan goes out and is eleven and two next year or beats Penn State at home again to improve to what four and two against Pence against James Franklin, then you probably switch the two. So I don't know. <laughs> it's an, to, to James question. It, it's an interesting component is like, how, how does this, how, how does this um, Harbaugh situation where they're constantly finding flaws instead of acknowledging the success yeah, you could probably you could probably bring up different points all day about it. Uh, Steve, real quick, this can be a quick one. Is there one recruit in the Harbaugh Hoke era? So your time covering Michigan recruiting, is there one commitment that you think Michigan is is most kicking themselves about? Oh boy. I mean, AJ um, Dillon comes to mind. Yeah, that's the first. I think that's the first one, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the biggest one. Honestly, I think we talked about this a while ago. It's funny now, but Jordan Elliott, like, as wild as that recruitment was, you know, he's turned out to be a, a hell of a college football player at a position where Michigan really would have been able to use a guy last year. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was, that was, uh, that was a wacky recruitment before it was cool to be wacky. And I mean, you know, he left Texas. So his recruitment technically really wasn't even done then. So he goes to Missouri and just, and tears it up the last two seasons. I don't remember where he was drafted this year, but I think he got drafted at a decent spot to Cleveland. Um, like I just left round. the page. Left, listed yeah. So Yeah. I mean, so I'd actually argue Jordan Elliott, to be honest with you. Hmm. I think the uh, difference maker in the middle of your defensive line, you know, where Michigan 
shouldn't the fan the fans should agree i mean that's all you ever hear about is defensive the defensive tackle right right they played glasgow there one snap of one game uh you know so yeah but aj Dillon's another good one though too obviously i mean he was not only did he play really well at boston college but he's would have been a perfect fit Mm -hmm. for how they like to run the football too maybe not so much as as much with Gaddis, but again, at that point, he was just a good enough player to where you're going to play him. He's going to run the ball either, no matter what offense you're running. So, um, so yeah, those are probably the two that come to mind. I think that I saw the question. Somebody mentioned Devery Hamilton, which had, can't really do anything at Stanford. Uh, yeah, transferred you know. to Duke. Yeah, which yeah, maybe he'll do something there, but I don't, you know, it wasn't like he, you know, was stud and they they you know missed out or anything there if any i guess they should have sent a letter of intent to alaric jackson which he wasn't a yeah commit, but he would have committed if they had sent him a letter that's all they had to do and they didn't do it so you know there's that one as well but yeah i don't know some of their decommitments some of them have turned into pretty good players i just think a couple it's a couple of their transfers that you know keith washington had a pretty good Finish yeah. at West Virginia could have used a guy like him on the roster this year. Benjamin St. Juice. Yep, St. Juice as well. Yeah. Now, you know, it, there's there's so many other factors. It's it's hard to do that. But um Yeah, I'm looking at Devery Hamilton. It looks like he started six games for Stanford. Now he had some injuries, but oh no, he started ten games for Stanford. But uh we'll see what he does at Duke. Anyway, thanks so much for the questions, everybody. Thanks to our listeners for listening. Uh, if you like it, throw it a rating, throw it a review, share it with your friends. Um, feel free to join the conversation over at the michiganinsider.com, michigan.247sports.com. Got lots of stories about Don Brown talking about the depth and what he likes and doesn't like at each position. Uh, some of his thoughts on recruiting in a pandemic, some of his thoughts on kind of doing this, this social distance thing and, and what a return to Michigan might look like. Uh, some of his thoughts on the 2019 season, you know, some, some good, some bad uh, talked about the Ohio state game and the citrus bowl. Be sure to check it all out and we'll be back with another football podcast tomorrow. So be sure to listen this for Steve Lorenz. I'm Zach Shaw. This has been the Wolverine 24 seven podcast. Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something. We'll see you next time.